listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. How are you guys doing? Awesome. One of you. Uh, it is great to be here with you. For those of you who were able to make it today, if you didn't and you're joining us online, good morning to you. I'm glad you are joining us there as well. My name is Adam McKeldry. I get the honor of serving here as the associate pastor on staff. Before I go too far, I want to just say happy Father's Day to all of my fellow dads out there. I know that being a dad, some days is not that great. Or, well, it's great every day. Never mind. Some days is not that easy, especially as your children get older and you have to learn how to let them go and, and be their own adults. It's not easy, which I'm learning myself right now. But, you know, all those difficult things... None of those things outweigh the first time your kid calls you daddy or all the hugs they give you along the way and the ones that are even more special as they get older and they still want to give you a hug. But dads, I want to just encourage you, keep doing the things you're doing. Keep loving your family well. Keep following Jesus the best way that you can because that's the best thing that you can do for your family. All right, so we are starting a new series off today. And my notes are not in the right place. Awesome. So, new series today. We're going to spend the next several weeks uh, in Revelation, like Carrie said. And this sermon series is based off of and inspired by the amazing opportunity that Josh and I had this last September to go to Turkey and be be a part of a study trip. Here's a picture of us here standing in front of the library of Celsus. This is in the ancient city of Ephesus, the city that we'll be talking about today. And since that day, since we were there, we have sprinkled in some things from here to there about what we've learned and what we learned on that trip. Um, but this series, we're going to focus entirely on what that trip was all about, which is the seven churches that Jesus writes to through John in the book of Revelation. And we've entitled this series, Left on Red. Now, I have a question for you all. And actually, and it's going to take a little participation from you, from you guys. But actually, this question is, is more for those of you in here that are 30 and over. And this also includes those of you who have celebrated turning 29 more than once. All right, so if you are in here and you are over the age of 30, please raise your hand with me because that's me. Awesome. Keep it up. Okay. Now, if you have your hand up and you know what the phrase left on red means, go ahead and drop your hand. Still a lot of hands up. That's what I thought. All right, go ahead and drop your hands. So let me explain to you guys what this phrase means. So when you are texting with somebody or you messaging somebody on like a social media app or whatever, and you send them a message, when they receive it on their device and they actually open it and look at it and read it, many times, depending on what app you're using, it'll tell you that it's been read, me as a sender. Kind of like on our graphic here, you can see it says read yesterday. Sometimes it even tells you how long ago it was read. Now, most often when we're sending messages back and forth to people, we're expecting or hoping for a response. But if you send something to someone and they open it and read it, 
and never respond to you, you've been left unread. Does this make sense? This is not a good thing. Ask anybody that didn't have their hands up at the beginning of this. And it's not a good thing because whether you mean to or not, you are still communicating back to them. And what you're communicating back to that person is that they are not worth your time for you to respond. And I know we don't mean to communicate that, but that's what happens. And it's that communication that is kind of the impetus to why we titled this Left on Red. As we work through the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches through the Apostle uh, John in Revelation, we're going to see a message that he's sending back and forth to to his church. Whether they answered or not, we don't get to know because it was thousands of years ago. But what we're going to do is we're going to try to tackle and hear what Jesus has for us. What is the message he has for us today through this letter? Because these letters are not written to us. They're not written to real life. But they are written for us. And since they are written for us, there is definitely something that we can pull out of it, just like all the rest of the books in this Bible. There's always something for us to hear and listen and and respond to. So if you didn't catch it by now, we will be in that scary book of Revelation. But we're only going to be in chapters 2 and 3. If you don't know much about the book, it was written somewhere around between uh, 94 to 96 A.D., And it was written by the Apostle John, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, while he was on the island of Patmos. Now, during this time period when, when John is writing this, the Roman Empire is still flourishing greatly. And on the throne is a guy by the name of Domitian. And Domitian was one of the worst emperors to ever rule. He was evil. He was a megalomaniac. It was during his time on the throne that another one of the great persecutions against Christians erupted. So like I said, it was during this persecution that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Some think it was in response to the persecution that was going on. And while he was there, he receives a vision from the Lord. And he's told to to write down what he says, what, what God tells him, what he sees, and to send it to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he would have written it down multiple times, so each church could have had their own copy and given it to a messenger. And when the messenger had arrived to that city, he or she would have stood before the church and read it out loud to them and left them with the letter, then moved on to the next city. And in the very beginning of John's letter, he's challenging the church to read it in such a way, a way that is similar to the way that I am challenging us as we read and listen to this thing. Come with me over to Revelation chapter one first. 
And we're going to read what John says to start off this, this letter. He says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, this is what this is, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. The Greek word there that is translated to take heart also means to, to keep, to observe. It's the same Greek word that John uses in his gospel when he quotes Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So John is setting the stage right off the bat. You have to do something about what you're about to hear. You cannot just sit on this. Now, before we're able to move on to what Jesus specifically says to the church of Ephesus, I think it's beneficial for us to step back and try to get a picture of what this city is. What were they about? Because I think that'll help us understand better what, who the people were there, who this church might have been, and what, what are some of the things they had to wrestle with. So let's start by orienting ourselves on a map. So here you have a map of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. This is the southwestern corner of the country. You can see over there on the edge, it says Patmos. That's the island that, that John is on, writing this revelation to the churches. And there's lots of cities on there, but there's some cities that are labeled with diamonds. And those are the ones that we're going to be talking about for the next seven weeks. Those are the seven churches of the revelation. I know something that you don't see on here is that all of these cities are along major trade routes. And because they're on major trade routes, they are substantially important cities because of their location. They're strategic. People are moving in and out of there all the time. But no city in all of Asia was greater than Ephesus. This was Ephesus. A Greek legend says that this city was established around 1900 BC by the Amazons. And it moved around this valley a while until like the 6th or 7th BC century, and it settled right here. And it was small, not nothing, nothing too special about it for quite some time until Rome came on the scene. And then during Roman rule, by the first century AD, the time period that we are concerned with, this city grew to be the largest city in all of Asia. It was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Over 200,000 people lived in this little area. This place is just barely twice the size of Troy. It's not that big. But it was a harbor city. And the Aegean city, uh, Sea is 
out there further. And so they had this harbor, and so that's why they were so important to the Romans. They, they were kind of like the economic capital of the Roman Empire, moving into the, the Asian area. But this, that, oh, go back, hold on. So we have this harbor, which was very crucial to their success as a city. But the problem was there's also a river that flows into there. And that river would deposit sediment all the time. And so the Ephesians had to work very hard to keep that open for ships to be able to sail through there. Today, and go back to the next picture, this is what Ephesus looks like now. Not much has been uncovered. There's only 15 to 20% of this site that's even been excavated. And you can see on the, the left center part there of the, the map, or, or this picture, where the harbor was. All filled up, all dried up, nothing there. Now, being a commercial and economic powerhouse was something that was new for this city in the first century. But something that was not new for this city, something that was probably at the very heart of every person that lived there, was the worship of the god Artemis. The goddess Artemis was the goddess of the hunt, of forests, of fertility and chastity. And it was believed that she was born in this area. And because of that, for thousands of years, the people here worshipped Artemis. They built a great temple to her called the Artemisian. And by the first century, this is what it looked like. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people all over the world would come here. Come here to see this amazing temple and to worship Artemis. Also in this area, there was a forest grove, which was the place that they believed Artemis was actually born. So people would go visit there as well. And it became known as paradise. Festivals constantly were happening. There's an ancient source that talked about how there were festivals every two weeks. They would start up at the temple, which was outside of the city, north of the city. And they would start parading from there along something called the sacred path, the sacred way, all the way into the city, through the major streets, and on the way back out. It was a deeply religious city that grew into the economic and powerhouse that it was in the Roman Empire. And this is the environment that Paul, remember Paul came here, spent two years in, preaching the gospel and establishing the church that decades later would receive this letter from Jesus through John. Probably meeting in houses like this because they couldn't, especially during the reign of Domitian, be out and about publicly because they were being persecuted. So they would have met here 
and little house churches and their own little life groups talking about Jesus, learning about who he was and what, what it looked like to walk the path of righteousness with him. And I'm sure it was very difficult to do that because of the city that they lived in, all the things that were happening around them, all the people, the, the friends, and maybe even family members who were choosing to not walk that path of righteousness with God, but instead walk the path of the empire or of Artemis. I'm sure sometimes even as they were meeting in those rooms, they could hear the procession happening outside on the streets. And this is Ephesus. This is the church that was established here that Jesus wrote to in Revelation. So let's go over together to Revelation chapter 2. And let's start reading his message that was very specific for this church. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now this is an interesting thing to start off with. If you haven't read Revelation before, you'd be like, what are the seven stars and lampstands? I don't understand. Well, he answered us that right before this, we didn't read this verse, but in the verse before this, Jesus says the seven stars are the seven angels for each church and the lampstands are the churches themselves. And so what he's doing here is he's out the gate, he's establishing his power and his presence among the church. The right hand always symbolized in, ancient, in the ancient times power and honor. And Jesus is like, I have all the power. I'm in control here. Not Artemis, not Rome. I do. And I don't wield this power from afar. I'm right amongst you. I'm walking with you. I will be with you through all of this. And he continues in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and had endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I think it's so cool here. Jesus is commending them for the same thing that Paul wrote to them years before this. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians 30 years before this, he does the same thing. He commends how this church fights for the truth, fights to remove false teaching from among them, fights against the evil that they are in every day. And Jesus is like, you're still doing it and you're doing a good job. And I know that you've been facing trials and tribulations because of it. Because I'm sure in this city that is all about Artemis that they were not making many fans or friends. But they did not allow that to influence them. To, to influence them to walk away from what God was calling them to do. To stand for the truth. 
But there was something that they were missing on. And as we continue reading in verse 4, we see what it is. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The two prevailing thoughts here about the love that Jesus is talking about is either he's, he's either referring to their love for God or their love for one another. It could be both. I think it's actually him referring to the love that they should have for one another. When we think about it, he just celebrated how hard they have been fighting for the truth in his name. Which for me kind of communicates that they're doing a good job of loving God. But they're missing. They're missing something. And I think it's their love for one another. Which is interesting because going back to Paul, when Paul wrote that letter to the Ephesians, love was something that they were known for. Paul writes it in his letter. He says, I have heard of the love that you have for one another and I thank God every day for it. They were known for loving with one another in the beginning. But something happens along the way and they get distracted and they lose focus and there's, they're so focused on fighting for what is right and for what is true that they forget how to fight for one another and fight for relationship. They lost sight of what loving one another looked like. And ultimately, this abandonment for their love for one another would, would affect their love for God. Because as we've talked about many times here, there is no separation between our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. You cannot separate love of God and love of your people. We can't. Jesus didn't. He tied it together many times throughout his ministry on the earth. They are tied together. The Ephesians were, were walking the path, walking God's path, but they were walking it their way and not his way. So Jesus says, hey, stop it. Stop doing what you're doing. Repent. Return to what you did before. Return to who you were before and love one another well. Walk the path my way, not your way. He continues writing to them in verse six. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I have no idea who those people are. 
And most scholars don't really know either because there's not a lot about them. But what we do know is whatever they're doing, Jesus does not approve. And the Ephesians have heard of it too, and neither do they. I love how Jesus gives us this perfect example of how we should give constructive feedback. He sandwiches his correction between two compliments. This is something I could really work on. And here's his concluding words to Ephesus. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What are you going to do, Ephesus? Will you hear and understand and act? Will you respond by repenting on of how you abandoned your love for one another and go back to living as you did before? Will you stop walking the path your own way and start walking it God's way? Or will you leave Jesus unread? Because if you do respond, if you do act and you do go back, you will experience a victory like you've never had before. You will get to come to my paradise as my guest because I invite you and not just invite you to hang out there and see what it's like, like the pilgrims do at Artemis' paradise. At this paradise, you have the freedom to eat of the trees. You get to eat with me. I think he's calling back to that relationship that he had with Adam and Eve in the beginning in Arden. In, in the garden. He's offering them a restored relationship. And this message that he's communicating the, to Ephesus, I think is similar to what he wants us to hear today. Will you walk the path God's way or your way? Will you walk the path God's way or your way? And when I hear this question, I'm instantly transported back to standing on the side of Mount Arbel in the Galilee in Israel a few months ago, listening to a teaching on walking the path. And what we were talking about that day is that, you know, there are only two paths in the world. There's God's path, and every other path, which is not God's path. And I think, we, I think we basically have a decent understanding of what all those other paths look like, what it looks like to walk that path our way. We know that that's not God's way. We're not talking about that today. I want to talk about us walking God's path. What does it look like to walk God's path his way and not ours? How do we do it so that we, we don't fall into the same trap as the Ephesians and somewhere along the way lose focus and start to walk it our own way?
You see, God's path was, it's never meant to be easy. It's simple to get onto, but it's not always easy to walk. You know, his path is kind of like this path of mountain shale I created up here from my backyard. It's hard. It's uncomfortable to walk on. But we have to choose to walk it. When we're walking our paths and we we're introduced to who God is and we find out who he is and who, who his son is and we see how amazing God and Jesus are and how totally worth it they are to follow him. We, we step off our path and onto his. And it's a little weird. It's not something we're used to. We're not entirely certain what to do, but we just start walking. I can feel the rocks under there. It's not that comfortable. We're just trying to figure it out as we go. I guess I'm supposed to go to church and read my Bible because that's what everybody tells me. And we just keep walking. And eventually we come across something that we don't want to step on. That looks really uncomfortable. I'm just going to step over that one. That's too hard for me to deal with right now. Or as we're walking, we come along something, a giant hill, and we're like, I don't want to climb that. Oh, hey, look at that. I have my old path right there. I'll just walk around this part until I get to the other side. And what happens is as we're walking the path, we start to find ways to avoid the difficult things. We find ways to make it more comfortable for us. And it's a really easy place to get to. To lose focus of what you should be doing as you walk the path. I can, I can think of many, many times in my life where I have been like the Ephesians and I have, I have lost sight of what I'm doing and I have failed to love my neighbor well. I just did it two months ago at Surfest. Standing out here in the lobby, I'm very focused and busy on trying to get everybody to the right places, doing God's work, just trying to get everything right. Because I want it to go off without a hitch. And I have an interaction with someone. And I converse with him and I walk off and I keep on going. But what I didn't know is that interaction was not great. That guy walked away from that 10-second conversation with me offended and hurt because I did not treat him well because I was focused on the task at hand. But I had no idea I had no idea. I praise God that he decided to come to me a little while later and share that and confront me about it. He could have kept walking the path, threw on some 
some better hiking shoes so he didn't have to step on that stuff again because people hurt you. But he didn't. He came to me. He shared with me. Hey, this interaction, I feel like I might have misunderstood you, but I walked away offended. And I was blown away. I had no idea. But I was so grateful that he gave me the opportunity to own my part and ask him for forgiveness for being ignorant of loving my neighbor well. So how do we do this? How do we walk God's path in his way and not ours? Well, we start by going to the text. In Psalm 37, verse 5, we read, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. It's really interesting here that the word commit is not that greatly translated. You see, the Hebrew word here is actually galel, which means to roll. And if we took this verse and we translated it word for word, Hebrew to English, word for word, it would literally read this way. Roll onto the Lord your path. Trust on him and he will do this. You see, when, when that moment comes and we choose to walk God's path, many times we just think we're leaving our path behind to step onto his way of doing things. And we see it alongside us, and we use it as this little escape route every now and then when it gets hard. But what this verse is telling us is we got to take our path and roll it on to God's, making our paths one. And this is something we have to do each and every day. But why? What is the reason for this? Well, in Psalm chapter 1, we get this amazing picture of what it looks like to walk the path well, to walk it God's way. And in verse 6, I think we get the reason of why he wants us to roll our path onto his. In verse 6, he says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that word knows there is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. But it's more than just gathering a bunch of facts in your mind and keeping them there to know about a subject so that you can regurgitate it later. To yada something means that you have a knowledge of that thing because you've gained it through experience. I knew about the city of Ephesus. I'd read about it. I'd seen pictures of it. But after September, I can now say I yada Ephesus. I have walked the streets I have stood in the buildings. 
I've stood in the theater where, where Paul was at and where John was at. I have a deeper understanding of what Ephesus was like because I've been there and I've experienced it. And that's what God wants with us. He wants to yada our path as we're walking. He wants to experience us at a deeper level. Will we let him? Will we let him? Are we going to do the hard work of of rolling our path onto his each and every day to remove the escape routes along the way? Are we willing to remove the things in our lives that make walking this path comfortable? Are we willing to let God's path inform us on how we're walking? Are we willing to let go of the control and the ability to tell this path how I'm going to walk it, but instead I have to now slow down? I feel every bit of this path And it feels every bit of me. And that is what God wants from us. He wants us to experience this path each and every day the way he wants to experience us. Do you have ears to hear what Jesus has to say to you today? What will you do, real life? Will you roll your path on God's each and every day? Will you remove the things in your life that you've put there to protect yourself and give you comfort as you walk? Or will you leave Jesus unread? It's your choice. How will you respond? You know, he invites us to, to many things. And one of those things is that he invites us to celebrate communion together. If you're new with us today, first off, we don't always walk on rocks and bare feet. But we do communion each week. And you don't have to be a regular tender here to, to celebrate with us or even a partner But we just ask that if you have not made that decision to get on God's path, to follow Jesus, that you just refrain from communion today. We'd love to chat with you more about it. You can come with one of the staff members or there'll be people up here praying at the end of the service. And they'd love to answer any questions that you have. But each week we get to celebrate and remember the work that Jesus did while he was on this cross, on, on the earth, the victory that he had over sin and death. So today as we celebrate and we remember, we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, 
gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember together. And then after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's celebrate together his victory. Well, God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you do not want us just to walk the path that you have set before us nonchalantly and to not experience you. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who wants to experience us as much as we do you. And so, God, I pray for each one of us today that as we sit here in this moment, as we sing more praises to you, Lord, that you will give us the boldness and the courage each and every day to roll our path onto yours. To return to the things that we knew at first when we first met you and walk the path that way and not our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.